Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. Mike McCarg didn't have a single friend in school from kindergarten through sixth grade. He tells the story, and when he tells it, he always says he was this unfortunate combination of chubby, and redheaded and super into computer programming, science fiction, and Hawaiian shirts. And that all kind of coalesced into him growing up in school without a single friend. And every day when recess would happen, he would uh, run as fast as he could to the edge of the playground. And for 22 minutes, he would be up against kind of the tree line away from the other kids because he was bullied and picked on so much. And he would just pray for 22 minutes on the edge of the tree line. And Jesus showed up there for 22 minutes. And he says he didn't talk back a lot, but Jesus was a great listener. And that he didn't make fun of him or bully him or pick on him. And so they grew into this sweet, deep relationship that started when Mike was a kindergartner. As he grows up, he gets more and more involved in the church. He eventually becomes a deacon in his church. He gets married. He has kids. He's the VP at an advertising company, and, and things are going really well. It kind of Things have turned around from that uh, kid that didn't have any friends, and now God has blessed him, he thinks, with all of these incredible things in his life. And then one day, his dad, who is the worship pastor at their church, calls a family meeting. And he gets everyone together and he sits everyone down and he says, I'm in love with someone else and I'm leaving your mom and I'm going to go chase that. And everything kind of fell apart for Mike. He actually turns to his dad and he says, no, you're not going to do that because I know the Bible and I know that that's not okay. And I know what the biblical grounds for divorce are and what they aren't. And so um, that's not one of them. And if mom wants to stay married to you, you're going to stay married. Mom, do you want to stay married to dad? And she's crying and she's like, yeah. And he said, well, then you have to stay married to her. You don't have a choice. Obviously, Mike's dad doesn't receive that super well. And this rift kind of comes between them. And so Mike thinks, I, I have to just read all the way through the Bible. I have to learn everything that I can about what it says about who God is, about what it says about divorce, and I have to come up with some compelling enough argument to keep my parents together. And so he starts doing that, reading the Bible to, to prove his dad wrong, that, that his dad can't do this, and he reads it once all the way through, and he starts to have some kind of questions about it, and he reads it twice, three times, and then a fourth time all the way through. And as he reads it, and as he begins to process more and more what it means as his dad leaves his mom, he begins to really struggle with doubts. Doubts about the goodness of God, that he would allow something like this to happen. Doubts about the Bible. 
inconsistencies he saw as he read through it, doubts about what he believed, his faith altogether. And so often he would take these doubts and these questions to his church where he was a deacon, but he wanted to make sure that nobody would discover that it was him that was doubting. So he would say things like, I have this friend who is doubting if God is real. What, 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 what should I tell him? Or my friend came and asked me this really hard question about how God and evil can, can coexist. How, how should I walk him through that? And he said at least a handful of times, somebody would basically retort, well, I for starters, I think your friend's probably going to hell. And Mike just fell further and further into his unaddressed doubts until he decided to discard everything he believed about God and became an atheist. But he didn't tell anyone. He was a closeted atheist. And he began to live this double life where he was an atheist in his mind, but a Christian in his home and in his social circles and especially as a deacon and a leader at his church. Now, Mike's story isn't all that unique. In fact, according to a recent survey done by the Barna Group, more than two-thirds of Christians say that they've struggled with doubt at some point in their life. And look, I'm sure those numbers were collected accurately, but I can't help but think that the other one-third of respondents are lying. Because every single person I have ever talked to, every Christian I know at some point in their life has walked through doubt, has struggled, has not known what they believe. I love this quote by Pope Francis. He says, who among us, everybody, everybody, who among us has not experienced insecurity, loss, and even doubts on their journey of faith? Everyone. We've all experienced this. Me too. That's the Pope. Just like, let that sink in for a second. Me too. It is a part of the journey of faith. It is a part of our lives. This should not surprise us because we are human beings marked by fragility and limitations. Even the 16th century reformer, John Calvin, once said, Surely, while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. You get the Pope and John Calvin to agree on stuff, it must be real. Everybody doubts. I think that doubt is truly one of the few shared experiences that we all have. It touches each of us. It transcends age. It's present in every race and gender and sexual orientation. It is undeterred by socioeconomic status and lifestyle and background. We all doubt. We all doubt. And doubt presents itself in a myriad of ways and situations. Maybe you first encountered doubt when you took a biology class in school. And you heard about the way that scientists believe that the world works and it was different from the way that you were taught the world was made or the world works. And you began to have some doubts about what was right and what was true, how they worked together. Maybe it was when someone close to you passed away. This was someone who kind of did everything the right way, someone that you trusted, someone that was a godly person, and then they just left the earth way before they should have. And that caused some doubt. Maybe it was when somebody perpetrated some trauma against you, and you thought, I try to be a good person. How could God let this happen to me? You began to doubt. Maybe you doubt when you see injustice in the world. Maybe you read a, a news story, a, a recent news story, 
about immigrant kids who are locked up without soap or hygiene products or sometimes even food and water or pants. And you think, how can a good God allow that to exist in the world he created? Or maybe like Mike McCarg, for you it happened when someone close to you did something just unthinkable. Someone you trusted, someone you believed in. They did something that was just so outside of what you thought was okay. And that person really represented God in a lot of ways to you. And you thought, how? Can this even be real? If this person would do that? And you began to doubt. Whatever the situation is, doubt almost always occurs when something you believe doesn't mesh up with something you've experienced. See what I'm saying? Doubt almost always occurs when something you believe does not mesh up with something you experience. Because doubtless faith is easy when what you believe and what you experience come together perfectly, right? I believe God is good and then something good happens to me. Oh, that's great. No problem there, right? I believe God fights for the vulnerable and then I see someone working for justice in my community, empowered by God. That works. That makes sense. No doubts there. But what happens when something you believe comes into conflict with something you experience? You believe that God is good, but then through no fault of your own, something bad happens to you. You get laid off. You lose a job. You have financial issues. Someone close to you gets hurt. And you say, these aren't good things. How can a good God allow bad things to happen? And they come into conflict. Or you believe that God fights for the vulnerable and then you read a story in the Old Testament saying that God commanded his people to kill every man, woman, and child and livestock in an opposing nation and burn an entire city to the ground. You begin to wonder, I thought God fought for the vulnerable. That's what I believed. But now I'm reading this. And those don't mesh. And doubt creeps in. When this happens... When something we believe comes into conflict with something we experience, we begin to doubt. This morning, we wrap up this three-week series we've been in called Peace Be With You. And it's based on this often overlooked story from John chapter 20. And this is John's accounts of Jesus's life on earth. And this story takes place after Jesus has overcome death, all the stuff we just sang about, right? After he's overcome death, he's risen from the grave but his closest friends, called the disciples or the twelve, they actually are unaware that this has happened. They still think that Jesus is dead. And in John 20, these disciples are locked in a room because they're afraid for their lives. They just watched their teacher and their friend be killed, and they think, we're next. And so they've locked themselves in this room, and they're really, they're really scared. But as they sit behind this locked door, afraid, alone, and in doubt, Jesus appears to them, and he declares, peace be with you. Now, I mentioned this during the opening message of this series, but I think it's worth emphasizing again. We have to pause and consider the timing of all of this for a moment. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus has just overcome death and risen from the grave. He's preparing to leave earth and go back into God's space, back into heaven, and he decides to make a detour. He hits pause on the ascension. He sees that his closest friends are afraid and alone and in doubt, so he puts off going back to heaven. He sees them, he sees they're in trouble, and he goes to help them. It's a beautiful story. We think about the timing of all of this. 
And this is the foundation of this entire story, this entire passage. And I actually think it's the foundation of God's entire story, his relationship between him and humanity. God sees us and he comes to help us. He sees us and he comes to help us. That's what Jesus is. Jesus is God with skin on. He saw us. He saw how hurting we were and how broken the world was and he put on skin and he came to help us. He saw us and he came to help us. This is God's story. This is our story. So in John 20, Jesus sees that his friends are in trouble and he goes to them and he says, peace be with you. And it's beautiful because he actually says it three different times, directly addressing these three big obstacles that they are facing. So they were afraid, right? They thought they were going to die. They didn't know what was going to happen. They just saw their teacher die. They thought they were next. They were afraid and he sees them in their fear and he says, peace be with you. That's what we talked about week one. They were also alone. They were aimless. They didn't know what they were going to do next. Not just that their friend had died, but the person they were following had died. The person they'd given their entire life to, their, their mission was gone. And so God gives them a new mission. Jesus says, just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And he gives them a mission. That's what we talked about last week. The last one is that they were in doubt. Specifically, a guy named Thomas. You may know him as Doubting Thomas. Was in doubt. Jesus goes to him and says, peace be with you. So like I said, this is week three. We're going to be talking about doubt. So if you want to, I'd love for you to turn with me to John chapter 20. If you've got your Bible or your phone, I'd love for you to follow along in this passage with me. The verses will also be on the screen behind me. John chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 19. Starts like this. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Again, the Jewish leaders were the ones that arranged the death of Jesus. So they were scared that was going to happen to them. They'd locked the doors. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So this passage, it covers the first two peace be with you sections that we've talked about the last two weeks of this series. And honestly, it seems like it could very easily be the end of the story, right? The disciples were afraid and alone. They didn't know what they were going to do next. They were aimless. They had no mission. Jesus appears to them. He shows them the scars from his death on the cross, his nail-pierced hands, his spear-pierced side. He says, I'm here, I've risen, I've overcome death. You don't have anything to be afraid of anymore. I know you're aimless, but here's a mission. I've, God has sent me, and just like that, I am sending you. Here's the Holy Spirit. Here's the power to go and fulfill that mission. It seems like the end, right? Because a lot of us, we know kind of what happens next because we're actually a part of the results. The disciples go out, they accept the mission from Jesus, and they they go out into the world through the power of the Holy Spirit, and they start this faith movement called Christianity. And again, because of that, we're sitting here today. They started the church, and because that, we are in a church this morning. There's actually one more part of this story, one more scene in this act, and it centers around one person, like I said, a guy named Thomas. Verse 24. Now Thomas, also called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So you can see that 12 is capitalized here because 12 is actually a title referring to the 12 disciples that traveled with Jesus throughout his entire ministry. We know that actually Jesus had tons of other disciples, some that we actually know way more about than some of these 12. But these are the 12, they were kind of the OG 12, right? Originals, they'd been there since the beginning. And so they were often called the 12. They started with Jesus when he started his public ministry three years before. 
So we find out that the 12 were actually 10 in that locked room that first night. Judas, if you remember him, Jesus' betrayer, he was long gone. And then our guy Thomas wasn't there either. And we have no idea where Thomas was when Jesus appears that first time. Lots of possibilities have been thrown around, but most likely he was running an errand for the group or just simply hadn't arrived at the meeting place that day. But honestly, I kind of think that he wasn't there. And I honestly think that this story made it into the Bible just so that we could learn an incredible story about doubt from Jesus and Thomas. Here's how it goes, verse 25. So the other disciples told him, they they tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, that's where the spear got him, I will not believe. Thomas is in doubt. In fact, that's how many of you have heard his name, right? Doubting Thomas. Why? Well, exactly because of what we talked about at the beginning. Something Thomas believed came into conflict with something Thomas experienced. See, he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the King sent by God to usher in God's new kingdom. And that belief came into serious conflict with reality when he saw Jesus get executed on a cross. See what I'm saying? He believed that Jesus was going to take over that he was going to become king, that he was going to rule alongside Jesus. And he believed that for three years as he followed Jesus all around and saw him do miracle after miracle and amazing things. And then that belief came into conflict with reality when Jesus died on the cross. And in this moment, the moment we just read about, Thomas actually does something, I think, truly amazing, something that so many of us are way too afraid to do. He voices his doubts. He just says them. There's something so beautiful to glean from this if we pause and consider it for a moment. Why are so many of us afraid to voice our doubts? Because in so many faith communities, doubts are unwelcome. They are met with ridicule or condemnation. There are places where questions are met with comments like, hey, those concerns would disappear if you just had more faith. And genuine questions are downplayed as symptoms of not fully trusting God. This was not true of Thomas's faith community. Paul, think about that for a second. This is, this is cool. Even when everyone else was so sure that Jesus has risen, has risen from the dead, he feels safe enough to say, I don't believe it. I don't get it. I haven't seen it. Our churches, I think, could really learn something about the environment that Jesus has created among his faith community with the disciples, a place where people could be themselves, a place where people could voice their doubts freely. This isn't the first time that it happens. If you read stories all throughout the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will see the disciples saying, I don't get this. I don't understand. Help me understand this. I don't even know who you are. Jesus, you say that you're the Messiah, but people say that you're like Moses or Elijah. I don't know. It was a safe community that Jesus had created for people to be able to voice their doubts, to ask questions. Okay, back to the story. Thomas voices his doubts 
about the resurrection and even lays out his terms for believing. I love this. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Those are his requirements for believing. File that away. We're going to come back to it. And it says a week later, his disciples were in the house again. And this time Thomas was with them. I think we need to pause again. We often uh, gloss over this verse 26, but I've honestly come to the conclusion that verse 26 is the most important verse in this passage. Let me read it again. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Here's why I think it's so important. Thomas kept showing up. Thomas kept showing up. Even in the midst of doubt, even in the midst of uncertainty, Thomas keeps showing up. A week later, he's still with them. Can you imagine what that week would have been like? The other disciples would have been talking nonstop about the resurrection of Jesus. It would have been the only topic of conversation. Remember, this is the guy that they had followed every day for three years, and they'd watched him die, and now he's alive again. There would have been no other topic of conversation. This is all they would have been talking about. It's the most amazing thing to happen in human history. And it wasn't like churches for us where they only gathered once a week. These guys were most likely together basically every moment of every day. Remember, they'd spent the last three years together every moment of every day. It's not like they had jobs, right? They left all that behind. A lot of them had left family behind, mothers and fathers and stuff. And they'd come and they'd follow Jesus with everything that they have. They were together day in and day out. Many scholars believe that they would have been staying at the same home during this time. Because they'd been traveling. They didn't really have a place to live during these three years. And so most likely they pooled what resources they had left or found some friend and they lived in this house all together. Here's the point. These guys would have been together basically every moment of every day for an entire week. And all they would have been talking about was the appearance of the resurrected Jesus. Something that Thomas doesn't believe happened. But our guy, doubting Thomas, keeps showing up. He keeps showing up. I bet this was kind of a rough week for Thomas, right? I bet he was experiencing so much inner turmoil about what he believed. He was thinking, I, I, I can't believe that somebody came back from the dead. That, that, just, that just blows my mind. But these nine guys that I trust more than anything else in the world, they all believe it with their whole hearts. I bet he's wrestling. He's trying to figure it out. He's doubting. He's questioning. And that's what makes the first words out of Jesus's mouth when he appears in the next verse so incredibly beautiful. Verse 26, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Y'all, that comment wasn't for Peter. It wasn't for Philip or John or Andrew. It wasn't for Thaddeus or Bartholomew or Simon. It wasn't for either of the Jameses. They didn't need peace be with them in that moment. They already got it, remember? They were there the first time. Jesus said it twice. He gave them the Holy Spirit. He said, peace be with you. Here is my peace. Jesus said, peace be with you to one person in that room, Thomas. It's like Jesus saying, Thomas, I know what this last week has been like for you. 
I know you've been in turmoil. I know you've been in doubt. I know that when I died, something you believed in came into conflict with something you've experienced and you have been struggling ever since. But I'm here now, Thomas. Peace be with you. Then, this is amazing. Jesus says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. The order here is so important. I've heard countless stories and even experienced times where this verse has been quoted by religious leaders to Christians who come to them or people who come to them with doubts. So someone asks a question, they, they in vulnerability open up with something that they're struggling with, a doubt, and they are immediately wet, met with somebody saying, hey, do you know what Jesus said to Thomas when he was doubting? Stop doubting and believe. But that is a gross perversion of what Jesus actually does here, right? If we understand it in context and we understand the whole story, the first thing out of his mouth is not stop doubting, get it together. The first thing out of his mouth is peace be with you. I know this is hard. I know this is a lot. And then the second thing he does is even more amazing, and it's such beautiful news for all of us doubters. Jesus goes to Thomas, and he meets him exactly where he is. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't scold him. Jesus says, Thomas, you said you wouldn't believe unless you could put your fingers in my nailed, scarred hands and your hands in my side pierced by the spear. Well, here they are. Here are my hands. Put your fingers on it. Here's my side. Put your hands on it. And as Thomas touched the resurrected Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, looked him in the eyes and said, stop doubting and believe. Is that a religious leader shaming a doubter? Is that a pastor ridiculing the question of a skeptic? No, not even close. This is a loving God meeting a doubter right where he is and saying, here I am, Thomas. You can trust me. You can trust me. And how does doubting Thomas respond? Verse 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Beautiful story. So what does it mean for all of us? Well, I think it gives us a profound but simple model for what to do when we experience doubt. Here it is. Number one, keep showing up. Number two, look for Jesus to show up to. That's it. That's what I think we should understand from this story. When we doubt, when we struggle, when we question, keep showing up and look for Jesus to show up to. So I'm going to break this down quickly. Verse, or first thing is, is number one, keep showing up. So it's important to note that doubt often leads to something called deconstruction. And deconstruction is, is really just what it sounds like. It's this sometimes slow and often painful process of dissecting our faith when something we believe comes into conflict with something we experience. And here's the thing. Deconstruction usually takes us one of two ways. The first option is demolition. The whole structure of our faith falls apart. We just take the whole thing down, we throw it away, it's over. It's what Mike McCarg did. The second option is something called reconstruction. We remove the parts of the faith that aren't working, that don't make sense anymore, and we replace them with better, truer parts, thus making our faith actually stronger than before. So much of what I love about my role as a pastor is helping people walk through the process of deconstruction. And I have found, listen, I have found that the number one difference 
between people who demolish their faith and people who reconstruct their faith is a healthy faith community. That is the number one difference between people who demolish their faith and people who reconstruct their faith is a healthy faith community. According to that same Barna study I quoted from earlier, 87% of practicing Christians said that their time of doubt improved their faith. Practicing Christians, meaning they were a part of a healthy church community. But for those who were not a part of a faith community, only 34% said that their time of doubt improved their faith. 87% that were a part of a healthy faith community said doubt improved their faith. Those who did not, who, who were not a part of a healthy faith community, only 34% said that it improved their faith. And many of them reported that they left their faith behind entirely. When you are in doubt, it is so vital that you find a safe place to walk through the deconstruction process. This is what Thomas had. He had a safe place, a safe faith community to go and to walk through this stuff with. You need a place where you can ask questions, where you can doubt, where you can be open about what you're going through. And if you've been here for a while, I hope that language sounds familiar because we say it every single Sunday in our opening video. Here's a screenshot of what it looks like. Welcome to a safe place where you can ask questions, doubt, and be open about what you're going through. We take this super seriously here at Restore. This is a safe place where you can ask questions, where you can doubt, where you can be open about what you're going through. So that's the first thing. Find a healthy faith community and keep showing up. Number two, look for Jesus to show up to. Again, this is what happened for Thomas. Jesus saw him and he met him right where he was, right? Jesus doesn't get mad. He doesn't get exasperated. He just shows up. And I truly believe, y'all, that Jesus does the same for us. He sees us in our doubt. He's not angry. He's not disappointed. He's not annoyed. He sees us and he shows up and he meets us right where we are. And I know what you're thinking. I've never seen the resurrected Jesus in my living room. He's never passed through a locked door and showed me his nail-scarred hands. Me either. But I'm telling you that he's shown up in my life. Absolutely and without question, Jesus has shown up in my life in all different ways. For Mike McCarg, Jesus showed up in communion. Remember Mike's story from the beginning? He was a deacon at his church, a Christian his whole life. When his worship pastor dad decides to leave his mom and Mike's faith begins unraveling. He eventually becomes an atheist, but he leads this double life because he doesn't want anyone in his home or his church to know. But pretty quickly, his wife figures out what's going on. She confronts Mike and he tells her what has happened. And so Mike's wife does what she thinks she's supposed to do. She calls Mike's mom and tells her what's going on. And Mike's mom comes over that night to talk to him about it. They end up debating atheism and theism that night until the sun comes up the next morning. Mike had a retort for every one of his mom's beliefs. And so finally she said, and I love this, said, Mike, I'm going to pray that God moves so powerfully in your life that you can't deny it's God. That's what I'm going to pray for you. And then she went away and she did exactly that. Sometime later, Mike got invited to a conference on creativity and how to come up with new ideas. And as an advertising executive, right, this was a huge part of his job. So even though he hears that the conference is actually run by this group of pastors, he's a little reluctant about that. He decides to go anyway. 
So this closeted atheist who is a deacon at his church goes to a conference run by pastors. Here's what happens. So I decided I can just go to this conference and steal the secrets of creativity as long as it doesn't get too like Jesus-y. So I go to NASA, it's amazing, I go to this conference, and it was amazing too until they started talking about atheism. And they sounded like really dismissive and insecure about people who don't believe in God. And I stood up and I said, you, guys, you don't understand, I'm a Southern Baptist atheist, and what you're saying doesn't describe atheism. Well, they were super gracious. They actually, no, I'm not kidding. Like, I expected, like, to be run out on a rail. And after I gave my, like, three-minute speech on the nature of ultimate reality and the futility of theism, uh, that was quite a sentence. They thanked me. They said, I think we all needed to hear that. Like, what? We all needed to hear that? It's tough to, like... Fight people that won't fight. It's tough to create an adversary of people who want to give you a hug. I think that's really instructive in the church today, in a lot of ways. At the end of this conference, I walked downstairs and they had like a little table with like bread and a glass of wine on it. And I realized we were gonna do like the youth camp thing. We've had this amazing experience, so let's end it with an emotionally manipulative ritual to make people feel like they have a significant experience and anchor it in their memories. And I was like, I'm not doing that. And they started, you know, the whole thing. And I think, well, I, I don't want to be rude and just leave, so I'll just go shake the pastor's hand. You know what I mean? Because you're supposed to do this. And I'm like, well, he surely won't misinterpret this. <laughs> If I did this to you, you wouldn't hand me something, would you? No, you would. You would you would shake my hand like a normal person. So when something like this, guy sitting there, and I walk up, you know what he does? The body of Christ broken for you. I'm like, oh, tricky, tricky, tricky. Here's the problem. If I do this out of a southern sense of social obligation, some of you know what I'm talking about. This room full of pastors go home and they tell their congregations they saw an atheist meet Jesus. And then they tell some friends and congregants tell friends and the next thing you know, I'm like an email meme grandmothers send their nephews who get caught looking at Richard Dawkins. You know what I mean? Like, this can't be my life. So I decide to just leave. So I shift my weight to my heels and I start to turn. And I, <laughs> I hear a voice. I don't mean in my head. I mean like an audible voice. And then the voice says, I was there when you were eight. And I'm here now. Can you imagine? Actually, you can. Just have them stand behind you and say those exact words. You'll have the experience. <laughs> Except when you turn around and nobody's there. And I thought about, God, those trees at the edge of the playground. And I thought about talking about Jesus, about why I'm so fat and why the kids don't like me. And how on earth do butterflies stay in the air? 
<laughs> and what's gravity? The encyclopedia won't tell me. And I think of the day that I heard about Columbine High School for the first time. And like these kids had gone on a campus and shot other kids. And everyone's walking around my office going, how could this happen? And I'm going, how could that have taken so long? If you've been bullied hard enough, you know how a Columbine happens. You know how pain over time turns into a resentment and a rage that never, ever stops? Not a day went by in high school once I finally had friends and kids like me. Did I not fantasize about walking onto school with a gun to find that one kid who was meaner to me than anyone else to execute myself in front of him so that he would know sticks and stones may break your bones. But words, words can kill you. but I never did. Because Jesus loved me, this I knew. For the Bible told me so. And so even though I didn't think Jesus was ever a real person, I took that little piece of bread and I dipped it in the cup and I took that communion, that Eucharist, that good gift in honor of a name which has saved my life even if I didn't have a soul. And then I ran out of the room crying like you do. And a few hours later, like 2.30 in the morning, I'm standing on the shore of the Pacific Ocean, and it's dark. And I start to shout into the waves, everything I think about this ridiculous God. God, oh, you, you're here now. After all this time praying, you're here now. After my parents' divorce, you're here now. Now you're here with me. Why are you here with me and not mothers whose children are dying in civil war across this country. Why does my mom's prayer for a miracle get answered? Who do you think you are? But I had to admit, God, I've, I've missed talking to you. God, I've missed the feeling that you're in my life. I'll make you a deal. I will pledge my entire life to being broken and poured out for others in the way Christians believe Christ was for us if you and I can just keep talking. And I don't know what happened tonight. I don't know what I think about the Bible. I'm almost convinced Paul's insane. But I know somehow tonight I met Jesus again. I was standing up at the top of the beach. It's not, the Pacific's steeper than Florida, okay? Uh, standing up toward the top of the beach and, and the waves just rush forward and they, they just surge past me. 
and they wash my feet. And the last thing the pastor said before serving the Eucharist was Christ's final act of service before dying on the cross was what? To wash the feet of his followers. And this sounds crazy because it is. But in that wave, I could just feel the hands of Jesus marking me as one of his own. I looked up at the sky and said, God, is this, is this real? Is this happening? And as soon as I said that, <laughs> this is weird. I saw a light, like, in front of me. But not in front of me. It was kind of shining, like, through the world. It wasn't hovering in it. That doesn't make sense, but it's what I saw. And the light got closer to me and brighter and warmer, and it surrounded me. And <laughs> it was just light everywhere. And I felt this love. I felt God's love for me, like God was giving me a hug. And moments later, I felt God's love for everyone. I was there when you were eight, and I'm here now. That's a word for some of y'all this morning. He was there when you were a little kid, and you didn't have any reason not to believe. And he's here now. If you will keep showing up, and you will keep looking for him, he will find you. I believe that with every part of my being. I've seen it happen. For Mike, Jesus showed up through communion and through the waves. For others, Jesus shows up through a church family. Amy and I, my wife and I were, still are, pretty devastated after a couple years of foster care. And there were things that we saw inside of foster care and the foster system for two years that made us really question a lot of things that we believed about God and his goodness, why he wasn't showing up someplace. Amy in particular, walking through some really difficult doubts and questioning through all of that. And not that long ago, if you guys were here a couple of weeks ago, you heard Janelle and Ashley share their story at Baptique about Janelle's cancer diagnosis and how the church showed up for them, rallied around them and loved them and cared for them. And Being so young, our, our eight-month-old, or he was four months old at the time. And Amy was so excited to be able to help, to be able to do something, right, to, to go keep some kids. So she drove up to Janelle's house kept her boys, or her boy and girl, Harry and Tilly, with our boys in tow. She kept them for the, the day and then was taking them back to Janelle's house to drop them off and, you know, was just going to drop them off, say, can I help with anything else? And Janelle had made smoothies and wanted to sit and talk. And so the kids played in the backyard and Amy and Janelle sat and drank smoothies and talked and Janelle just had this like glow about her. She was in the middle of cancer treatment, still is. 
And Amy just said, how can you glow like this? How can you be happy? How can you trust Jesus in this moment with all of this stuff happening to you? And Janelle said, when I needed it most, God put this church family in my life and came around me and brought my family together and supported me like I needed it. And this was even before the diagnosis. And two weeks before she got diagnosed with cancer, she prayed and she asked God to use her in the same way that people had been used in her life. And when she got that diagnosis, she thought, this is how God's going to use me. He used you. Sitting there on your porch, talking to Amy, telling her that doubts are real and that they're okay and that you can lean into them and that people will show up. Jesus, through you, showed up for her. And that's just one story. You guys have done that for us like crazy over three and a half years. I have another good friend who's walking through something really, really hard in his life right now. He hasn't known where to turn. He's been struggling. He's been crying out. And I will tell you that I'm so proud of him because he's kept showing up. And he told me this story about the other day. Some people came over to his house, some old church members from Restore who have moved away but were back in town, came over to his house and prayed over him. And during that prayer, he had this vision. He was in a hospital bed and he said it was like one of those cheesy made for TV movies where he was all really sick and dying and there was this whole host of family and friends out in the waiting room waiting for him and miraculously he was just healed. And he gets up and he walks out into the waiting room and everybody is just crying and they're so excited and he's healed and it's amazing. And he's, he's hugging everyone and people are coming up to him and kissing him and saying, we're so glad you're okay. But in the back, he sees his dad. And he says his dad is just fist clench, shifting from one foot to another because he's so excited for everybody else to get their hugs in so he can go hug his son. And it was like in, in one sweep, the vision changed and everybody else was gone. And this dad walked up to my friend and he embraced him harder than he's ever been embraced before. And he said, Zach, I felt the love of God as my father like I have never, ever felt it before. And there was a piece of my heart that was so broken and so hard and so dry that it felt like literal water, cool water, was being poured in to this dry cistern when I was being hugged. He shows up. He shows up in communion and on a beach. He shows up in our church family. He shows up when we pray. I don't know how he's going to show up for you, but I am telling you that I believe with my entire heart that if you keep showing up and you keep looking for him, he will show up for you. And when Jesus shows up and when you lean into this reconstruction process and not just throw out everything and demolish it, the results are incredible. In my life and in the lives of so many people I've encountered, I have seen Jesus use their doubts to lead them into truer and deeper understanding of who he is and his kingdom here on earth. We believe this so deeply here at Restore. 
We believe it so deeply that next week we're taking an entire Sunday to create space for Jesus to show up in your life. Like I said, we're calling it Mosaic Gathering. Right here, Sunday morning, 10 a.m., we're gonna have seven stations across this room where you can interact with Jesus, where he can show up through prayer and communion and church family and meditation and scripture. We also wanna give you a chance to experience Jesus showing up right now. I'm going to pray, and the band is going to come back up and lead us during a time of response. And this is going to look different for everyone. Some of you will want to stand and sing out. Some of you will want to sit down and reflect. Others of you will want to spend time praying, maybe even praying with someone else. And so if that's you, I want you to know that me and some of our prayer team are going to be standing right over there. We would love, love to pray with you. Whatever that looks like during these few minutes, my challenge to you is to take a breath and ask Jesus to show up and meet you here. I think he will. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the stories of you showing up. God, I thank you that you don't ever miss an opportunity to meet us where we are. That if we keep showing up and we keep looking for you, that you meet us there that even when, like Thomas, we make our demands, <laughs> that you don't ridicule us, you don't make fun of us, you don't say, get it together. Like a loving father, you come with your nail-scarred hands outstretched, saying, I'm here, and you can trust me. And you meet us where we are. Right now, God, as we spend some time singing and praying and looking for you, I pray that you would show up right now in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.